Hello everybody, welcome to part two of the Bumper End of Year podcast. So in part one we discussed self-defence questions, questions related to the pandemic and teaching. And in this part we're going to discuss questions related to Katrin Bunkai and training. So without further ado, let's get started on the Katrin Bunkai questions. So welcome to the Katrin Bunkai section. Uh, the first question is from Matthew P. It doesn't give a surname, just an initial. He said, do you think that different kata may be intended to be read or decoded in different ways? For example, kata A might contain techniques, applications that are intended to flow from one another in a linear fashion. Kata B contains a technique application and then branches off into various what-ifs and backup plans. And Kata C just might be a literal collection of techniques, applications that aren't intended to be strung together for at all. For example, a collection of throws or joint locks. So I think the first thing is, you know, the, the Kata tend to be quite holistic in their nature. Uh, so the, I can't think of any Katas that are simply um, specific to method, like throws or, or joint locks, because that would render the Kata... Uh, a specialist cutter, it's not uh, wide-ranging enough. But as regards the the other two, uh, I think you can see those within cutter, uh, not necessarily throughout the entire cutter as well. Uh, you may see sequences where techniques flow from one another, and then you also see things branching off with, you know, if he does this, do this, but if he does this, do this. Obviously, they're presented in a linear fashion in the kata, but they're meant to be applied in, in a parallel fashion. So I would certainly see the first two there as to be legitimate ways to, to look at the kata. So when I do that, uh, when I'm looking at a kata, what I tend to do in the first instance, I'll look at it as a, um, a flow. So I'll go, you know, how does this move flow onto the next one? Now, at a certain point, you might just think, well, it simply doesn't. So that's the point where I would get the scissors in and say, right, that's the lesson for that sequence. The cat is now moving on to something else. However, sometimes, you know, when you look and think, okay, I can see how moves one and two flow together, but I can't see how one and two would flow into three. Well, it could be that one will flow into three directly. So what the cat is saying is do one or two or one or three, depending on the opponent's response. And I think you see both of those. And um, the only way to truly know what it's showing is to analyze the cat and find out which way of looking at it makes most sense. Struggling to find ways for students to train on their own. Need training methods that work for socially distanced and online training? Then check out our new revolutionary solo training drills. Not, they're not kata. These solo training drills enable students to maintain movement skills, fitness and combative skills through the use of set routines and visualization. There has been nothing like this before. Seriously, it's not kata. For years, we've told you how solo training drills were a complete waste of time and were an archaic relic of the traditional martial arts. But now we have unique drills that we think are awesome. Developed during days of frantic research, this unique form of practice has never been seen before. It may look exactly like kata and is meant to function exactly like kata, but these are a lot more half-arsed because unlike the traditional kata that we've had to mimic at short notice, we don't really know what we're doing. To be honest, this is not really our wheelhouse. Anyhow, check them out! So the next question is from Adrian Havers. He said, why didn't the past masters in their infinite wisdom design the kata so that there was no dispute as to what the techniques are? In Hian Yodan, we see a clear clinching knee. There's no doubt about this whatsoever. Uh, in a similar way to the way the shadow boxer boxes, why isn't every move obvious? If I was to build a kata, I'd make it so obvious as to what the techniques are, there would be no arguments and controversy. So I think some of the examples are immediately obvious. Uh, for example, like the uh, the pull and knee that you see in, in Yodan. But I think some of them are also obvious once you know what it is. So it's quite a common occurrence for me at the seminars. I'll teach you, give an example, and very rarely do people go, oh, wow, that's so clever, I would never have thought of that. The, the most common reaction is people go, oh, yeah, that's obvious. You know, these Homer Simpson-esque dough moments, you know, slapping of foreheads as that light bulb goes off. Uh, so, and I've experienced that too, you know, I've been working away, trying to analyse a movement, try various things out, and then when I go, oh yeah, it's obviously this. You, you reach a point where there's no doubt in your mind anymore as to what it is. I also think one of the things that we need to think about with the cutter movements is, 
it's always giving one specific example and you will always vary away from that example in application. So let's say you uh, decided you're going to show a particular movement and in uh, mapping it out, you made the assumption that the opponent was the same height as you, which is a fair enough thing to do, right? If the opponent was taller than you or smaller than you, then it will be adapted in application. And there's lots of other reasons why it would adapt. You know, the environment you're in, um, what way you're moving, is the enemy pulling you or pushing towards you? You know, lots lots of different reasons why it'll be varied. So you're almost always going to vary away from what the cutter shows slightly. Now, one solution to that could be the cutter should or could try and show every single variant. And then instead of one move, you've now got a dozen moves or 50 moves, all essentially showing the same thing with minor variants. Well, there's no need to do that, right? Because you, you'll get those variants through your partner practice and your live practice. So the cutter goes, here's the example. Uh, and therefore, and there'll be some variation away from it when you actually apply it. It won't look exactly the same. And, and the, the way, you know, you, you mentioned about um, shadow boxing, I use that as an example. So when people go, oh, that looks a little bit different, though, you say, well, yeah, it is, because I've varied it simply because of you know, the positioning or the height or the way that I'm built. Uh, and I say, well, look at a boxer's cross. So if you go into a boxing gym, they'll show you how to do a cross, and it'll be pretty, you know, the, the same. Then do a Google image search for boxing knockouts, and you won't find any two crosses that are exactly the same. The, the opponent will be in a slightly different position, the guard arm will be in a slightly different position, they may be moving backwards to the left to the right, they may be leaning a little bit, there's always some variant. So I, I think sometimes um, the reason that it, it doesn't seem obvious is that we just don't understand it yet, and then when we do it becomes obvious... And the other thing to remember is that when we're looking at the example of the kata, it is an example of the movement that we're supposed to vary away from as well. So it doesn't always look exactly the same, uh, just simply because of the, uh, the nature of combat. So the next question is from Michael Barr. He said, I understand cutters are designed to map out an outline and to give context when applying techniques, strike, throws, locks, etc. in a self-defense situation. Over time, cutters have been changed to make them look good. Uh, good in quotes, as the performance of the cutter can be an end in itself. Exaggerated low and long stances are common, as are the shortening of uh, techniques and head height kicks. Such changes have often been detrimental in the context of the original self-defence applications. This is not to criticise sporting or competition cutter, as it's demanding, requires skill and is good exercise. However, as a do-what-we-practice, should those on the path to practical karate uh, begin to align their cutter practice with workable applications? Also, science has moved on since the old masters designed the cutters. Today, there is a greater knowledge of sports science and biomechanics, and thoughts on self-defence have evolved. Should cutter practice also move with the times, or would this be to lose the tradition of our karate? It's a really good question, that. So, so my thing is, the cutter should evolve and always have evolved. For the reasons that, that Michael has discussed there as well. So so when karate starts to become a form of modern budo, and there's an emphasis placed on athleticism and aesthetics, the cutters get uh, adapted that way. And I don't necessarily see those as negative things, so long as you're aware of it. So if you are doing the head-eye kick, well, that's aesthetically pleasing and physically demanding so there's nothing wrong with doing that in your kata but when you would come to the bunkai you would go right i know that this kick should be dropped down down low it is also possible to have more than one version of the kata so i know people who go well this is how i do it for competition and then they'd go but this is how we do it in application so in my case talking about the high kicks i, I was never taught them that way uh, the front kicks were done middle level but pretty much all of the others the side kicks and stuff like that were all done knee height that, that was how i learned them uh, so that's still still how I've done them. Now, if I had been taught the cutter such that I had a head height kick, uh, I would let the students know that it's possible to do it head height here for the athleticism or the aesthetics of it. Um, but, you know, you do it whatever height you want to do it. You know, so if you want to do it in a practical way, do it knee height. If you want to do it in a slightly more challenging way, then do that too. You know, I, I think that's totally fine as well. So, But if you're purely um, self-protection focused, uh, then the, there is an argument that those uh, aesthetic things should be kind of stripped away. If you've got absolutely no interest in the other elements. For me, I mean, my view on this has changed a little bit. So in my, my 20s, early 30s, all I cared about was... You know, how does this martial art work in practical situations? That that was the driving thought that I had. I've moved away from that a little. Uh, I, I still want everything to be functional and practical, uh, but I, I see a greater value in those other things than maybe I once I once did. I'm a little bit more open to it than, one, than, than I once was. 
Um, but if, if you're purely self-defense focused, then by all means adapt the cutter. And it's a great point about the uh, the mechanics of it. So that's something I've done. Been introduced to Peter Considine's uh, double hipping idea, which of course he got from Kimura. That is something that I've incorporated into the cutters because I saw that as a more uh, efficient way of moving. So therefore, that became uh, part of the ways that I practice the cutter. It doesn't change the, the look massively at all, but it, it does change uh, their, their effectiveness, I, I find. I always said to Peter, it was like he put a bigger engine in the car. You know, So my car from the outside looks the same as it did, but it's got a bigger engine in it now. You know, it'll go a bit faster and perform a bit better because of those concepts. So cutter has always changed. I, I see no reason why, why people shouldn't uh, change it. And, and I think nowadays as well, people are a lot more open to that. You know, uh, when I was cutter judging way back when, it, you know, the rules were no variations were permitted. That was it. You, you got shown how a cutter should be done. And if anyone varied away from that, then they were disqualified, you know. Uh, but now, as I understand it, obviously I'm out of that world now, but as I understand it, they're, they're much more open to uh, to variation. So yeah, you know, the cutter should change and evolve, and, and you should be doing the cutter in, in a way that kind of fits your own objectives. Happy thought number four. The end of the pandemic is closer than it was when I started this sentence. With every second that passes, you are closer to the happiness that lies ahead. So the next question is from Claire Sun. She says, do you see fundamental changes in the types, methods of attacks and therefore self-defense techniques or strategies applicable to females as opposed to males? And therefore, given that traditional karate was largely developed by and for men, are there deficiencies in our kata or other techniques that we should be addressing to ensure females are learning relevant and applicable skills? That is an awesome question. Now, th th there is one, it slipped my mind as to which kata it is at the moment, but there is one in the uh, Shitoryu Shukakai family where there is a male version of the kata and a female version of the kata. Um, so it would seem that there are, there are katas out there uh, like that. Now, statistically, there, there are differences uh, in the ways that uh, men and women are most likely to be attacked. So you know, last time I looked at the crime stats, you know, in terms of the most likely way for a, a man to be killed is in the UK is to be stabbed, and that's the same for a woman. Uh, but once you get beyond that, for a woman, it's more likely that she'll be strangled to death by someone she knows in her own home. Uh, with a man, it's more likely he'll be kicked or punched to death by someone he doesn't know in or around a location that serves alcohol. So there, there are uh, differences there. However, although there's differences in emphasis, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't teach women how to defend against strikes, uh, nor would I uh, um, not teach men how to defend against strangles. So I, I think the traditional kata have what we need, but we may shift uh, the emphasis depending on who we're teaching. So there's always that line of Itosu's, which I, I love. It's in his sixth precept where he said, learn the explanations of every technique well, and then decide how and when you would use them when needed. So we're supposed to draw from that communal knowledge set, if you like, and then decide what's most applicable to us in application. So it may be that the female karatekas would say, okay, this choke defense is of a higher priority to us because of the statistically likelihood uh, of the fact that that's more commonly uh, used against uh, females. As a means to solve, you know, dominance and control, right? Whereas with the men, you may say, well, the striking techniques may be more important to me. But I think everybody uh, should know uh, everything. But there is a place there, and that would be really interesting to do. You know, that would be um, something I would suggest to the uh, female karateka of the world. That, that there's there's probably a place there for a female kata designed specifically to address uh, female self-defense and to put the emphasis on the things that, that women are most likely to have to have to deal with. So that would be a, a really interesting modern innovation that we could uh, we could make. Uh, I, for one, would be fascinated to see that. I'm, I'm not the right guy to, to create that kata. I think if it's a, a woman's kata, then obviously the, the women should uh, create it. But yes, I'd, I'd love to see that. I think that would be a really exciting addition to the, uh, the canon of karate kata. So the next one is from Joe Rickard. He says, with so many kata that have lasted the test of time, is there a need to make more kata? Uh, well, it could be, as we previously mentioned. There may be something that we feel is not addressed, or, or there may be something that we wish to specifically uh, record. So, for example, I made my Sainipo kata, uh, for my own personal practice, although I have taught it to some people, to record uh, Motobu's 12 two-person drills. I wanted a way to practice those on my own, so I created a kata um, for them. Uh, and also, you know, there may be things that weren't as effectively addressed 
um, in the old cutters that we may need to think about now. So I know that there are modern cutters that deal with the, the use, uh, retention and, and defence against firearms, for example, which again are not something that's really addressed by by the traditional cutter. So do do I think there's a need? I wouldn't say that there is a need, but I would say there's no reason why we can't either. If we feel that there's something that's not there or we've got something we wish to specifically record, I think we're perfectly capable of creating modern cutter just as the old masters were. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I'm always excited when I, uh, I see a, a new cutter. But the old ones suffice for me. People have asked me that, you know, do I feel I could, you know, create my own? I think, well, if I look at like the Pinan series and the Hanshi, which are the backbones of, of what I do, uh, they give me all I need. I, I don't really think I could improve on them. So for me, I, I, I create um, Kata when I've got something I wish to specifically record. And another one uh, from Joe, he says, uh, do you think the classical form could be replaced by uh, um, more modern forms? And again, I, I see no reason why that couldn't be the case. Personally, I, I like feeling part of that tradition. So uh, there's, there's an attraction to doing the older forms. That's got nothing to do with the practicality, but it's one of the things that attracts me to karate is that uh, feeling part of that tradition, feeling part of that chain. But there, there are modern schools out there who, who have created modern forms and that they serve the same function as the old classical forms. So so long as whatever cutters you're doing are giving you what you need in line with your own objectives, I, I see no cre uh, reason that... Uh, Modern ones can't be invented, and I see no reason why people couldn't choose the modern ones over the classical ones. As I say, for me, it's a personal preference to remain with the classical ones, both from a personal enjoyment point of view, you know, the flavour of the art I want to practice, and also from a functional point of view. But yeah, I see no reason why people couldn't do modern ones instead. Next question is from Tabout Klinger. My question is about the Taikyoku cutters. Do you see any value in them? And if yes, what are they supposed to teach? So those very basic cutters come from the 3K era. So the value in those cutters is that they are a good cutter to teach you how to learn cutter. Right? It's because the footwork in them and the movements are very simple. So as a good introductory cutter to get people ready to learn the more traditional ones, the, the more pragmatic ones, uh, there the, the can be value in them there. In and of themselves, uh, I, I don't think they have a great deal of pragmatic value. I think you're better, you know, sticking with the traditional ones. Um, the more modern of those, I would say, would be the Gekisai cutters in Gojiru. They're probably the, the latest ones that I would still regard as, as, as classical, as in that they have a, a combative intent. Uh, the Pinan cutters for those in the Shitoru, um, Shotokan, Wadaru lines, you know, those kind of lines too. Uh, but the, the, those basic cutters that they're useful for beginning students, uh, particularly children, I think. You know, I have something similar that I do with my kids, kids' classes to get them used to pivoting and turning and, and get them used to those kind of things. But from a practical point of view, no, I, I don't really see any, um, see any value in those. So the next question is from Trevor Olsen. He said, I've noticed that my thinking and approach to the martial arts has shifted over the past decade. Where karate, taekwondo and kung fu seem completely different when I was younger, I have a hard time drawing a distinction between them now. This is even more true for styles within given arts. All I see is a particular preference of movement being expressed. As long as those underlying movements are not simply random, they express a particular approach to combat. So in a sense, good combative principles are universal. As someone who teaches kata-based drills, do you find this to be the case? And are there any kata from other arts that you find particularly intriguing? Have you thought about incorporating any into your overall system? So, not really, no, in terms of incorporating ones from other systems. We, we do have a grading requirement uh, for the third dan, that the students learn a kata from uh, another lineage, uh, perform that kata and do full kata breakdown for it, show full bunkai for it. And the reason we have that there is for exactly what Trevor's been talking about. It's to, one is I think it's an interesting process, but also it's to stop uh, style snobbery. It's to make them realise that there's one karate and lots of different expressions of it, and it's all kind of good stuff. But we don't move outside of the karate framework for that. Uh, I'm lucky enough that when I teach the seminars, we do get practitioners from lots of different systems, you know, so Taekwondo, Tang Soo Do, which are obviously related to karate, but also lots of forms of Kung Fu, which don't have that direct lineage there. Um, and, and you find that a lot of the concepts are indeed common. Uh, it's, it's always a real joy when that happens. And I love it when people start showing me movements from their forms and how they relate to what we've just been talking about. It's always a, a really enjoyable um, experience uh, for me. In terms of the cutters I find uh, particularly intriguing, 
uh, a set that really jumped to mind. So, and, and these will be uh, lost to most of you. But uh, uh, Canadian Wadaru is, is largely the work of uh, Shintani. Uh, and Shitani originally learned a whole host of cutters before he moved over to, to, to Wado. Uh, now, the source of these cutters is, is lost. No one seems to know where the, the, they came from. Uh, they refer to them as the secondary cutters in a lot of the Wado groups over there that I've, I've, I've worked with. So they'll do the ones that are quite common in Wado, and then they have this additional set. Now, their origins are lost to history. Uh, Shintani is clear that he learnt them uh, from a, uh, from a, another a gentleman, so you know they would seem to have some um, some lineage, but that's kind of lost. And when friends have uh, shown me those forms and broken them down, I find them fascinating, really, really interesting. Uh, but obviously not interesting enough to add them to my uh, personal approach because I feel that the cutters we've got already are, are more th than enough. But on that point as well, it's sometimes you can even look at art to seem radically different. So I'll, I'll tell a little story about that. Uh, when I was training in judo, uh, one of the guys who also trained with us there, um, like me, he was at judo to kind of enhance his grappling skills. Uh, and, he's, and he was a really good judo player too. But uh, his primary uh, arts were the Chinese uh, systems. Uh, Bagua in particular was one that he was fascinated with. So I asked him if he wouldn't mind coming down to the dojo and taking my students through from uh, basic Bagua. Now, if you look at Bagua and karate, they would seem on the surface to have nothing in common. So he, he gets us in, he puts a water bottle in the middle of the room, he starts walking around it and showing us basic turns and bagua movements. Very different from what we used to. Uh, the students start kind of playing with it. They found it quite interesting in terms of the movement. And then when we dis started discussing applications, he says, so, so you know, what would you guys do from here? Well, okay, as a karateka, I'd do A, B, and C. Oh, yeah, wow, that's exactly pretty much what we do. You know, and and as, the more we expressed it, the, the more we realised that once it gets to, you know, bodies interacting and people hitting one another... Although the training method is different, the combative principles aren't that different. Maybe a different emphasis placed on, on, on certain ones, but nevertheless, the full set are found in, in, in both systems. So, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of commonality there, and, and there's definitely value in looking what, what other people are doing. Um, even if it's just to give you a, an insight into what you already know. So, so yeah, really good question, that, Trevor. And um, it's always interesting to explore what other arts are doing. <laughs> Buy how to maximize your online martial arts training. Learn vital skills such as footwork to avoid stepping on family pets. De-escalation techniques for when you need to banish the family from your training space again. Basic carpentry skills to repair inadvertently cattered furniture. Basic acting skills needed to fake Wi-Fi problems during demanding drills. How to effectively misframe videos so your instructor can't see how bad your stances are. Buy now while the pandemic lasts! So the next one is from uh, Pierre-Alain Chabot. He said, When karate was first exported to Japan and then to the whole world, it underwent a lot of changes. These have influenced in turn the way that teaching happens back in Okinawa. I could be wrong, but I have the impression that the pragmatic karate revolution is mainly coming from the West. Do you think it will reach Japan soon? I don't really see a sign of it yet. So there's, there's a few things with that as well. It's, it's, there's more of a Western influence on karate than people realise, I think. If you look at the, the, the pictures of the old masters when they're posing for photographs, they have what we'd recognise as a guard that's reminiscent of the boxing of the time. Boxing style footwork has definitely influenced uh, karate where it first used footwork that would be more recognisable from kendo, say. Uh, training methods too, of course, have moved back and forth. If you think of the Do revolution, uh, Kano, the founder of judo, was the guy who really kickstarted that, but he got a lot of his inspiration from the way that sport was used for character development in the education system of, of England. So th there is that kind of back and forth influence anyway. I think one of the, the, the big issues, because you get this a lot, they always go, why are all the practical karate guys Westerners? And I think that's a language thing. So if you type the letters Bunkai, B-U-N-K-A-I, because you're writing it out in Western letters, you're going to get Western search results. Now, if you put the characters in for Bunkai, uh, you'll start to see the people doing that kind of stuff from Japan. So it's definitely there. It's just that we tend not to see it because as Westerners, we tend to look to other Westerners and we search using Western characters and therefore we see what's happening in the West. So 
there's, there's pragmatic karate happening here, uh, which may be influencing what's going over in Japan, and there's pragmatic karate going on in Japan, which has an influence over here in the West as well. You know, these people go out there and train that stuff and bring it back. So I think it's there, we just don't see it. And I think a big reason we don't see it is just simply because we're looking on the internet and we tend to use our own languages to search with, and therefore we get results that have been posted in those languages. Next question is from Paul uh, Leonard. He said, given that the old masters knew only one or two kata, but knew them in great depth and were highly competent in their skills, do you think today's karateka know too much superficially and we're in danger of drowning in too many techniques and katas? So there's definitely an issue with uh, kata collecting. You know, so people know a great many kata, but don't really understand them. And there's a lovely Funakoshi quote on that where he said, uh, in my day... People studied uh, narrow and deep, but today they study broad and shallow. You know, so they know lots of stuff, but they don't, they don't really get to the depth of it. So, so there is a danger. I, I do think, though, that the the counter argument to that would be, we don't want to be the generation that culled all the cutters. So, if we only really continue to practice the ones that we're diving deep into, there's a danger that many don't get passed on. So, I have this this idea of like I think of it like an archery target. You know, so you've got these concentric rings going out. So in the middle, in the gold, see how I did that there for all the arches. I know it's not a bullseye, it's a gold, right? I know you get quite upset about those things, right? But in, in the gold, for me, would be uh, the pinan cutters and naihanchi. They're the, the core of what we do. In the next ring out, for, for me, I'd be looking at the... Uh, Chintos, Pasais, Kashankus, the ones that kind of influence those cutters. So we do those in quite a bit of depth too, but not in as great a depth as we do the other ones. We're mainly trying to inform of additional variations and to show uh, uh, additional expressions of the principles we've already been introduced to. So the further out that those rings you go, the next one you'd have cutters that um, aren't core cutters, but nevertheless are explored to a degree. And then you go out a little bit further, then a little bit further, and you've got cutters that you know how to do but you've never really spent that much time analyzing practically and then at the outside ring you'll have cutters that you're just simply you know aware of and can walk through really uh, so uh, the, 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 we can't go massively in depth into every single cutter we do so we need to choose which ones that we're going to do that on but there's nothing wrong with kind of keeping a cutter ticking over so you can pass it on to the next generation so maybe they can analyze it and, and break it down you know so you don't have to read every book in the library but you want to make sure that the library remains intact for future generations so there's definitely a danger with any individual group that they're doing too many cutters and not analysing them enough. You need to choose your core cutters if you're doing it from a practical approach. But I don't think that means you necessarily have to jettison all the others. You can still do them, you just do them to a lesser degree. The next question's from Harry Gilling. He said, what movies are in a cutter that you don't really understand why it's there? So there'll, there'll be loads, you know, because there'll be loads of cutters that I've, I've never analysed yet. And, you know, I'll have to look at it and think about it and do some research and, and kind of come to my own conclusions on that. So there'll, there'll be lots of them. Within the cutters that I, I practice, there's none. Um, because obviously I've been at this for a long time and I'm, I'm confident with my approach to, um, to all of those, those, those particular cutter. There are some movements in cutter that, would not seem to have a pragmatic function within some of the modern versions, particularly the competition versions. You see some like elaborate flourishes where when you look at it and you say, well, I'm not seeing that in the traditional versions, but I can't really think what the application is for that. Well, in those cases, it's probably just, yeah, somebody changed it because they thought it looked cool. So that would be the reason why it's there. So uh, th there's, there's lots. I'm sure there's lots. One of the things I, I love about the residential courses when we run those, is I always ask people to uh, let me know what themes they want me to cover, all the attendees, and we'll spend at least an hour on that theme. So it's quite common for people to say, well, here's a YouTube link of a cutter that we do that I've never seen anyone else break down. What are your thoughts on it? So when I, I almost always look at those, some of them I can immediately go, well, that looks pretty obvious. But there's always somewhere I go, right, need to think about that, need to work on it in the run-up to the, the residential. So, uh, And I'm sure at the next set of residentials, there'll be more kind of sent to me that where I, I, I don't know what they are. But, you know, with the research and understanding, we, we, we tend to, to get there, you know, get there in the end. The next one is uh, from Durham Snyder. He said, I'd like to hear your comments on Gabe Suarez's uh, release of his gun cutters. So first thing is, you know, I have very, very limited experience with firearms. So, so I, I can't discuss the content of them. But one of the things that I loved uh, when I saw Gabe's video on these was his explanation of what his gun cutters 
were hoping to achieve. Because to me, that was that is a really good explanation of how kata should work. So in terms of his thinking behind the katas, uh, I'm very impressed with it. Uh, in terms of the content, again, I can't speak to that because it's not my speciality, right? So Brent is in partnership with uh, uh, Brent Yamamoto. And if you've seen Gabe's stuff, Brent's the other guy demonstrating everything, right? And explaining everything. Uh, and I know uh, Brent uh, a little bit better. He is a traditional karateka. Uh, Brent's been to a, a few of my seminars. and I've spent uh, time uh, hands-on with Brent. Really good guy. Really, really knows his stuff. So uh, again, that traditional input is, is, is there into these forms as well. And both of them move really well when they, they do these cutters. So uh, yeah, I'm really impressed with them. And, and it makes sense to me to... Uh, take the traditional kind of concepts and, and apply them to those kind of drills so people have a means by which to retain skills develop skills drills things solo um yeah impressed with them but uh, again uh, i'm sure the content is excellent but i can't really speak to it because it's not my uh, my field of expertise next question is from tim uh, Ide. he says if each cutter is a style of its own, what style is the most holistic in your personal opinion? So it's a really good one, right? So, you know, we know that the cutters are encapsulations of learning. And although we've gathered them together in modern styles, uh, they weren't intended to be used that way. So it's quite common for modern karateka to think of each cutter having a theme, you know, so this cutter's for dealing with tall people, this one's for short people, this one's for a guy armed with a bow, this one's when you're fighting on gravel on a wet Wednesday, you know, they just go to these nuances. Not traditionally the case. Each of the cutters was designed to be standalone. They weren't developed as a set. They were developed by different people in different parts of the world at different points in history. So each one is a, a summarization of the key points of the system that right, gave birth to it. So in terms of which cutter is the most holistic, uh, you choose any, you know, because like fundamentally we've got a small set of core combative principles, uh, which each cutter encapsulates. So you, you choose the cutter that speaks to you the most, the one that you enjoy the most, and then break it down. But combatively, you'll end up coming to the, the same kind of conclusions. The, the one I like the most, uh, and it's personal, I like the Pinan series. So Itosu's Pinan series were effectively a summation of the karate that was being practiced in the Suri region of that time. So I think the Pinan series give you a great introduction to the wider kata canon as well, as well as being an holistic self-protection system in and of their own. So, you know, gun to my head, you know, choose a set of kata to do, well, I'd probably go with the, the, the Pinans. Uh, Nahanshi's also one that I really like. So I think the Pinans and Nahanshi, you've got your bases covered there. But other groups could go another way. You can choose pretty much any kata. And once you break it down, so long as you understand that the movements are illustrations of principle and we're supposed to explore other ways to enact those principles, then pretty much any kata you care to think of is uh, holistic in nature. So the next question is from Eric Puket. He says, what non-shurikata do you end up practicing most often? So that would be seipai. Uh, I, I always... I've had a bit of a soft spot for Seipai. So very lucky that I've always had very open-minded instructors. Uh, the instructors, uh, uh, Doug James, who I started under, uh, he would get people, his friends from other styles and systems to come in and teach us on a regular basis. Uh, so the first time I was introduced to Seipai by a, a, a friend of Doug's, who's a high-ranking Shitoru practitioner, uh, he took us through Seipai and said, oh, I just love this thing. I really, really like it. So since that point, that, that's always been a kata that I've, I've spent quite a bit of time on. So as I've mentioned before, for our higher dan grades, third dance, we asked them to learn a kata from another system. Um, and, and in doing so, uh, Seipai is one that's often chosen because it, it, they like it too. <laughs> uh, it fits nicely with, with the ones we've got. So, so yeah, I, I have a soft spot for the Gekisai's as well. I do like the Gekisai katas. Uh, uh, but but uh, definitely it would be Seipai, would be the non-Shuri kata I work most often. And in terms of the most obscure cutter I've worked on, that would probably be uh, the secondary cutter from Wado, uh, as it's been practiced by the Shintani groups in Canada. I uh, find those things uh, quite interesting, fascinating. Next question is from uh, Nerf Hoffelmeyer. He said, aside from other grading requirements, sparring drills, etc., how many cutter would be a reasonable number to require for dance certification? I've seen schools with as few as five, which seems low to me. Uh, how many would be too many, in your opinion? So, see, I'd be one of the groups that's pretty close to five. <laughs> so our, our core one's up to our first down. And, and on average in our dojo, it takes about eight years to get first down, right? Seven or eight years uh, for those who are dedicated. 
and and in that time it's the five pinan cutters and Nahanshi. so there's our you know six if you like there uh, they'll probably uh, have a, a like a good uh, understanding of kishanku at that point as well but it, the breakdown of that cutter is not really required until second dan right so we have a a, a kind of core 10 up to fourth dan which would be uh, the pinan series uh nahanshi uh, nahanshi showdown to some uh, Kushanku, uh, Pasai, uh, Chinto, uh, and uh, Sishan. They would be our uh, our core core ten. We also have a few optional cutters higher up, you know, so uh, Niseishis, One Shoes, all those kind of ones too. Um, but 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 again, you know, we have a core ten, and up to first down, it's those six cutters. So as regards too many, the defining factor would be how many are you not breaking down. So if people are learning. 10, 15 cutters up to first down, but are never really understanding what those cutters are about, that's too many. You need to create space on the syllabus to allow people to understand what that cutter is. Otherwise, you're just dancing around the surface of the cutter. You're not really kind of breaking it apart and getting to its uh, its true value. So, so yeah, you know, you, you can have a, a low number if you're breaking them down in depth. Uh, and, you know, I would avoid having so many that you're not really learning what they're uh, they're all about. So, um, again, it goes back to that Funakoshi quote of, in my day, we studied narrow and deep. Today, they study uh, broad and shallow. So I think we want to avoid getting too broad because that necessitates getting pretty shallow as well. Uh, final question is from John Reed. He said, if you could only do one cutter for the rest of your life, what would it be? So as I've said throughout, I have, you know, the Pinan series and Nahanshi, Nahanshi Showdown. Only one, it would be Nahanshi. You know, I, I love that thing. For, for pragmatic reasons, I, th I think it's incredibly well constructed. I think its uh, movement principles, I think, are excellent. It, it breaks down the essence of power generation, the way of spiraling up from the floor. Uh, I really do uh, like like the form. And I have a romantic attachment to it as well, on, on the basis that I, I had a, a knee injury where I couldn't kick or pivot for about 18 months. So the only cutter I could do during that time uh, was Nahanshi. So I always say that when all the other cutters abandoned me, Nahanshi was the one who stuck by me. So I also find it really historically interesting uh, uh, as well. So it'd be yeah, Nahanshi, because I think it's functional, it's pragmatic, and it's intriguing. It's also for someone who travels a lot, it's a great cutter too. I always call it my travel cutter. Because, you know, you're stuck in a small hotel room, I can't necessarily run through your Kushankus and your Pasais. But there's always enough room to do Nahanshi, so it's, it's one that probably gets practiced the most as well, simply because of the, the ease of being able to practice it. So, yeah, I love that kata. Nahanshi kata it is. So the next set of questions are on training, and the first one is from Craig Stewart. He said, I have a few injuries and training can be painful. When do you get to the stage that someone might think about giving it all up and forgetting karate, weights and rowing, and do some simple exercises in life just to get by? So I think one of the things is you've always got to listen to your body, you've always got to listen to the doctors, and if things are getting painful, that's your body telling you that something isn't right, something needs to change. So there may be ways to, to, to deal with the pain or to, to start to feel better again you know physiotherapy or maybe even surgery whatever it takes uh, but i also think so we have to change the way we train as our bodies change as well so for example let's break those down so with the weight training when i was in my 20s it was big heavy lifts i always liked pushing for personal best seeing if i could lift a little bit more you know it was the right kind of training for me at that time i really enjoyed it i got a lot out of it but now, as you know, I'm on the gates of 50, it's no longer appropriate to train that way. It's taken me a long time to realize this, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is something I should have realized quicker, but I'm not 20 anymore. So I, I need to train in a different way. So I still train hard, but my ambition is no longer to be as fit as I was when I was 20. My ambition is to be the fittest 50-year-old I can be. And of course, you know, I'm in the second half of my life and then some now, right? So I'm, I'm looking at making sure uh, I have as much longevity, that I have high quality of life, and that life lasts for as long as it can. So Whereas I was younger, my body was sometimes the enemy. You know, I would force it to do things it didn't want to do. There was that internal battle. Uh, me and my body need to negotiate on much more friendly terms these days. Um, so when my body tells me something, in the past I would tell it to shut up. Nowadays I, I'm prepared to, to listen. 
Uh, same with the rowing. I, I've given up trying to catch personal bests that I got, you know, when I was much younger. It's rowing is now more about, you know, my health and trying to remain as, as fit as I possibly can be and train in an age appropriate way. And the karate is the same too. You know, some of the training methods that I did when I was younger, they weren't that intelligent. You know, the heavy contact sparring, for example, in particular, took a toll then, but at least I was at an age where I could recover from it. I'm, I'm now at an age where injuries last a lot longer. Uh, you know, there's that saying, isn't there? You know, as you get older, you no longer get injuries, you get minor permanent disabilities. So I, I, I try and train in a more uh, sensible way. And there's people I look at for inspiration too. You know, there's a, a guy I know in his 80s who goes through a few gentle cutter every day and he's not sparring anymore and he's not hitting pads anymore, but his karate is enjoyable to him and 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 taken on a different shape and i think that's one of the strengths of karate too if you look at other martial arts they have a a short lifespan you can only do them for so long and then you've got to leave them behind but karate is something that young children can do in one way and teens and 20 somethings will do another way the middle aged will do another way and the elderly will do another way but your karate can last with you throughout your entire life now, I have, a, again, another friend uh, who's in his 70s, very fit guy, and his instructor, he told me, he was also training you know, well into old age, said that the trick was just never to stop, just to keep going in, in a way that's um, appropriate for your body. I always remember there's a lovely tale in the book, The Heart of Karate Do, written by uh, Igami, who's a student of Funakoshi's. And, and he, he got stomach cancer, um, uh, terminal stomach cancer, and then thought, okay, my karate is over. You know, that, that's it. I'm not doing it anymore. And he, and he said he remembered Funakoshi telling him that, you know, karate could be for your whole life. So he just changed the way that he trained. You know, we don't have to always do hard, fast, super dynamic cutters. If it's appropriate, then we can do them slowly and more gently, and that can be good for our bodies. And it still reminds us of all those practical things too. So I think we do need to listen to our bodies because injuries are counterproductive. Pain can really re reduce the quality of your life too. So obviously that's uh, something to be avoided. But in the first instance, I would look to... Uh, adjust expectations and train in an enjoyable age and health appropriate way and then you know you, you keep you keep going and if you do get to the point where you think you know whatever i do it's it's not working for me I, you know i like that hard fast dynamic stuff and that's painful now and i'm not interested in, in doing karate in another way then again there's nothing wrong with moving on to something else you know i, I know of people who've started they'll walk a lot more or they'll do yoga and mobility and all that kind of stuff so that would be my advice and certainly that's my plan you've got to listen to your body you've got to listen to the experts you do what you can to get uh, rid of the pain but you train in an age appropriate way and a way that's appropriate for your body as is not as it was or we would like it to be and and you keep the enjoyment going you keep getting the benefits out of it you know you don't need to be going like a 20 year old all the time and i think that's one of the great strengths of karate happy thought number five Adversity develops resilience and ingenuity, and when this ends, you will be more capable of living your best life than you were before. So the next question is from Yuha Kokari. I hope I've pronounced the name correctly. He said, I really like uh, guided online solo trainings, especially pad drills like Tandoku. What's your opinion on online solo training and pad drills? What are the pros and cons? So I, I do have uh, in the app, there's a number of guided solo workouts. So there's a video that explains how it works and then you play the audio file and then you work along with the audio file. So you can solo train. So the great thing about solo training generally, whether um, online or using some media like that or even just training on your own is you can do it anywhere um you don't necessarily need any kit to do it either it's one of the, again another one of the strengths of karate is that you can practice it is in a fashion without partner and a kit so the good thing about that is it supplements your partner training and and, and can make you sharper than you would have been overall um it, it's good to do that i think the, the, the pros of it again is it can be done anywhere it'll, it'll sharpen the skills uh, the cons are that you uh, you are training on your own so the variables of a living breathing human being are removed when it comes specifically to the pad drills again the great thing about them is you can do the solo pad drills on your own at any time they are good for fitness they're dynamic they'll be quite enjoyable uh, one of the cons in that, again, is that the distancing is determined by you because you're holding the other part. It's not something you have to adjust to. And one of the lesser obvious cons is that you have to hold the pad stable in order to hit it. So your, your pad has to remain firm. Now, in terms of 
getting the best effect from your strike. At the moment of striking, the hand should become a little bit soft, so you get the maximum shake of the brain and the maximum penetration through the target. But if you hold the uh, partner too firmly, you take a bit of that shake out. You almost support them in a way. Um, so the solo pad drills can develop that bad habit that you are constantly uh, tensing the arm that is being struck. Now, of course, in reality, the opponent's body would be between the two. But if you get into the habit of always tensing that muscle and keeping it firm as you hit, you can reduce the power of your strike. So like everything, you've got to fit into the matrix uh, properly. You know, um, One form of training on its own is never complete. It's the mix that makes it complete. So the next question is from Matt Curry. He said, any recommendations for neck exercises to make the body more robust for receiving impact? I have an old school neck harness, but no access to neck machines. Uh, he said, I've only been doing garage roux. Love that term. That's a great term, Matt. Uh, since early this year due to the pandemic. So for, for me, again, keen to avoid injury these days. Uh, the neck exercises I do, I'll lie on my back, lift my head slightly off the floor, turn it left and right until it burns a little bit. And then I'll lie on my belly and I'll lift my head off the ground and slightly and then turn it left and right. Sometimes do that on a, on a bench, uh, a bench too. I find that works for me. I, I don't really do much more than that. I used to do a lot of the bridging exercises when I was younger, and I think I got lucky there that I never injured myself doing those, so I, I, I don't do those uh, anymore. But as regards receiving impact, of course, the best thing to do is not take impact in the first place right so sometimes we can be so keen to make our bodies invulnerable to impact that we end up injuring ourselves right we shouldn't be doing our opponent's job for them so we always need to train in a way that keeps the body fit strong and, and healthy and, and we don't want to be doing anything that makes it uh, makes it bad i have seen some wonderful neck machines recently though some very cleverly designed uh, bits of kit uh, which Better than the old school neck harnesses as well. You know, they seem to be much, much better. But yeah, we need to be careful, uh, careful with that one. And for me, it's just that simple one lifting up left and right, face down, left and right. That's it. The next question is from Daniel. Daniel didn't provide his surname, but he'll recognize it by the question. He said, in one video I was watching, you mentioned uh, original or traditional sparring, and you also used the term cutter-based sparring. Are these uh, exactly the same thing? Well, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. We have some descriptions of the way that old-school sparring used to work, you know, the crossing of arms and then fighting at close range, and Funakoshi talks about doing drills where people would hold him down and he'd grapple to his feet, and where there'd be multiple uh, partners who'd try and put him down on the ground and he had to keep them away with kicks and punches. Furukoshi says he can think of no better way than these uh, to, to learn to defend against multiple opponents. So he's a big keen on live multiple opponent drills. So we do those drills, but we also have plenty of others in kata-based sparring as well. So you take the methods of the kata, the principles of the kata, and you create a series of layered and structured drills that are suitable to the physical condition of the students and their level of, uh, of expertise. So uh, the intent is exactly the same. Kata was always supposed to have a link with partner practice and, and live practice. The link between kata and sparring is well established in the old literature. For example, Funakoshi saying that uh, sparring is not to be practiced separate for the kata, but is for the practice of the kata. Motobu saying that the sparring is, is live drills uh, where we apply the techniques of a kata as we grapple with the opponent. You know, there's that, that link is there. So the kata-based sparring is a traditional concept, but the exact way in which I do it is pretty much my own innovation, right? Because we don't have those detailed descriptions of what they, uh, they did in the past. We do all the things they said, but we do plenty of other things besides. Next one's from Graham Palmer. He said, we know in a real life situation, when it goes physical, it is a very fast and chaotic affair. We could say it's a sprint and not a marathon. So what are your opinions on aerobic and anaerobic drills and exercises for practical karate? Which of the two, aerobic and anaerobic, do you think most suits a practical approach? If both are important, how do you categorize and train each? Does one have more regular presence in your training over the other? Is it a fair assumption to say that many karate clubs practice more aerobically than anaerobically? So I think it is. Now, if we're talking about pure self-defense, it's about how much you can do and how quickly you can do it. Right? It's not about trying to fight for five minutes or 10, 10 minutes or 20 minutes you know anyone who's thinking you know oh this fight's going great the opponent's getting tired and i'm 10 minutes in i think you should have finished him nine minutes and 59 seconds ago right so we try and do these drills where it's just get as much out of you and into the the enemy as quickly as you possibly can and obviously that's anaerobic in nature 
the other thing about anaerobic training is it mimics some of the effects of that adrenal dump you can get in life situations. It doesn't feel particularly pleasant. You lose your fine motor skills. You know, all of that, you know, you can make you feel sick and nauseous. All of that stuff is similar to when that fear really, really floods you. You know, you'd rather be anywhere else but there. And being able to override that anaerobic discomfort is good training to be, to be able to override similar situations uh, in actual combat. But I would say that aerobic training is also very important for your health in particular. You know, it's very important and it's good to have that base level of aerobic fitness for your training generally. So if you do one anaerobic drill in the class and you can't recover from that and you, that's you done, well, that's not great. It's your aerobic fitness that will allow you to uh, to recover, to move on, to do another drill that's maybe not so intense before you do another intense one. So, so I think you need a mix. Ideally, you need a mix. So for the practical training, when it comes to combat, the anaerobic training is definitely more important. Uh, hard, intense drills. Uh, aerobically, though, it's also important to do that kind of stuff because that base level of fitness, that base level of health, and it'll help you train more effectively overall. And, and I think it is true that quite a few karate do practice karate in, in too much of an aerobic way. They don't reach those levels of intensity. Which, if he's, if he, that's health appropriate and, and age appropriate and you're able to do that, um, it, it will be a, a better preparation for combat. So, so yeah, a, a mix of both, um, but anaerobically would definitely be the one that's closest to, uh, to actual combat. So the next question is from Andrew Revel. He says, uh, our militaristic style of drilling basic key on has almost been replaced by more fluid, more focused key on with more practical combinations. All the same principles are taught, but it is less static. This move has been more pronounced in 2020 as we try to practice effective techniques when distanced. The so-called old way, in quotes, of Keon will probably disappear altogether from our club. Uh, would you agree this is a, a good move? So, yeah, I do, I do. But we can break that down a little bit, I think. So, in my teaching and training, we still do basic Keon. So, simple movements, you know, oizukis, gakazukis, gidambarais, uh, agiyukis, shutukis, all that kind of stuff. All the basic kicks will run through them singular, because I think that's important. So in that way, it's like the old style stuff. When it comes to the combinations, you need to move on from that to take that awareness of body movement and all those kind of sound mechanics you've got and then start to learn how to combine it with other movements and in an effective way. So you've got that fluidity of motion. And I think sometimes what we see is people start right, so they'll get that good solid key on in place and then when they do combinations it's just the same basic key on put end to end well that's not the point you need to get them flowing together that that's the next level up and they also need to be functional combinations and i see a lot of this where people don't do functional combinations you could take sequences right out of the cutter of course that's one way to do it but you also see these bizarre combinations where people do Shutuki into nukate, front kick to the front, side kick to the side, back kick to the back, turn, spinning back fist, back kick, you know, all kinds of weird things. And then when you ask them why they do that, they go, well, it's difficult to do and it teaches us how to move. Yeah, but it's teaching you how to move in unrealistic sequences. So as the point Andrew makes is you can still learn to move through realistic and applicable sequences. So I think there's still a need for basic key on when it comes to singular technique even for advanced level people to really refine that advanced level, um, those, those, those nuances of that basic technique, right? Uh, but then we do need to move on to more fluid and more practical uh, key on. And in my circles, I certainly see those bizarre combinations with no direct applicability. They are dying out as people either use sequences from the kata or create their, their own kind of combative sequences to do that for. So there's still a need, for, I think, for the old-style basic stuff. When it comes to combinations, uh, I think it should be uh, more fluid and we should kind of get away from that movement for movement's sake that appeared, you know, in the kind of 1940s and onwards within within karate. 
Next one's from Chris Crudelli, which I'm sure you all know Chris. He said, what do Japanese masters and others such as yourself do to remain supple and soft as one passes to middle age and beyond? As a Chinese practitioner, I teach and do Tai Chi to ward off injuries and illness. I literally couldn't operate without it. But it just occurred to me here that there must be an equivalent amongst you guys as you see many healthy and very supple elderly karate masters uh, in Japan. So uh, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Tai Chi. You know, it has the health benefits kind of obviously built into it and i think some of the the karate training is is overly focused or can be overly focused on you know those super powerful younger people and the point that chris makes is you know as you get older you've got to change uh, change and adapt so uh, stretching uh, mobility work uh, is part of of karate generally you know it, it's something that's kind of commonly practiced and i also think the the kata um, can be done in a soft way too and when they're done in that way you get a different effect um, you can sometimes visualize a, a little bit better, you know, if you're not used to visualizing a realistic uh, enemy. So that's one benefit. But from a health benefit, it just gives you the chance to work that mobility, to work the movement, to really think about how you, you're moving. When you're moving quicker, you can make these little minor errors that you'll get away with the first 10 times. And on the 11th time, you suddenly pull a muscle when you do it. So I always remember an interview with Kanazawa where he was talking about uh, this this kind of thing. And it was talking about the importance of doing soft cuts. So you do a cutter normally, and then you would do it soft, and you would normally, then you would do it soft, then you would do it normally. So you didn't space them. And, and that's a form of practice that I've done for a, a long time. I don't always do the cutter with full speed and power. Uh, I will do the cutter in a, in a soft way too, because I think that improves the quality of your cutter. And it also does give you that chance to work on... Uh, avoiding potential injury as well as keeping the body you know mobile and supple you know so uh, yeah i think that it's kind of built in the mobility and, and the stretching stuff and, and the kata can be put to that end as well and there are hard and soft moves in the kata too right it's not all hard so the next question's uh, from uh, Mark. He said, uh, I was wondering if anyone does any low light training. I remember one night years ago sparring, lightly in brackets, in, in class with only a bit of moonlight from the, the windows. <laughs> so, uh, of course, you know, real situations can happen in low light. So being able to fight where you're not reliant uh, on your vision is an important thing. I don't necessarily think there's a need to kind of turn the lights out, though, because, you know, there might be a need why people need to open their eyes quickly for safety. But just that form of sensitivity training, that close-range training, uh, develops that. When when you do a lot of that, you realise that you don't really need your vision that much. You, you, you feel more what's going on than what you see. And there's a lot of the kind of techniques that rely on that, of course, you know, that proprioception idea. Uh, I, I do, if I've got the space, I do like to go through kata with my eyes shut. And it's something I do like the students to do because you lose that orientation from the outside world and you have to orientate yourself from what you're feeling. And it can sometimes be quite surprising so you'll finish the cutter and think you've ended up in the same space and you then realize oh i'm looking at 45 degrees from where i started so that means your internal awareness of your body isn't quite what it should be so so that can be a a, a good form of, of of practice as well is so long as you've got the space to do it he's, he's doing the cutter with uh, with your your eyes shut too so uh low light training i i, I personally don't that don't do much of that because of the, the risk of injury but i think the sensitivity training will help give you the same skills and it can be a good thing to practice uh, with your eyes shut and you can practice grappling with your eyes shut too of course if you and your partner agree to it and there's the people to watch you and make sure you don't injure yourself i don't have told this story but years and years ago long time ago probably well over 20 years ago it was april fool's day so it's april the first and uh, we, we were talking about this a lot in class you know the idea of you can feel where the enemy is so we decided to have a bit of fun with two of the lower grades who I knew were good sports, right? So we told them, right, okay, we, we, we are going to do some blindfolded sparring, right? And I said, but we'll start at a distance. And they went, well, wait well, a minute, we're going to start at a distance and he's swinging wild punches at my head. You know, it's one thing when we're in a clinch, but at a distance. I said, no, no, it's fine. Start slow until you get hold of it, one another. But, you know, it's all about that sensitivity feeling. So we blindfolded them, but then we put them at other ends of the dojo facing away from one another. They didn't know this, of course, you know. So I say, okay, go, you know, do it. So they're kind of swinging punches in the air and I'm shouting out things. Whoa, 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 watch the groin kicks. That one was a bit close and the clamp and the knees together and stuff. And then at a certain point, I go, take them off and they take them off. And ah, oh, yeah, bah, 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 you know, they're kind of swearing and laughing. So you can have a bit of, of, uh, of good fun with it, uh, with it too. 
The next one's from Phoebe Young, and she asks about ways to maximize uh, online training. And the first thing we need to acknowledge with online training is its limitations, right? So it, it can be great for improving technique and fitness, but we have to be aware that whoever's watching is watching you in th- 2D and that can sometimes make it difficult to check stances. I found that during this Zoom era. If one of my students puts the camera slightly off to one side but they're going straight, the stances can look too thin or too wide from my angle. So I've learned to tell them, you know, just check your stances. It looks too wide here but it might be the camera angle and, you know, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So, so you have to be aware of those uh, limitations and when you're aware of those limitations then then you start uh, playing to those strengths so if you say right we for the online training we are primarily working uh, fitness and coordination and, and and body movement i think that can really help i also think it's important that the instructor doesn't just set up a camera and work out with you you might want to do that sometime because it can be nice to work along as a group. But the way I tend to do it is I demonstrate things and then I'm right back in front of the, the, the screen so I can see what's going on and I can give individual feedback to people too. So I think the instructor has to play a big part in that, in making sure that there's that two-way feedback loop. And, and it's not just people kind of effectively working out to what amounts to a live video, right? So, but, but yeah, realize its limitations play to those limitations and try and make sure that the instructor is giving you the direct feedback so that you can uh, you can improve it you know online training can be great it, it can be a really useful supplement as we've all found out never a substitute but we just need to work out what it's good for and, and try and maximize that as best we can Next question is from Gavin Poffley. He says, uh, cross-training with different instructors and in different arts can have enormous benefits, but is it possible to cross-train uh, too much? Well, because it depends on your objectives with that, I think. you know. So, But for me as a karateka, my aim has always been to be the best karateka I can be. So when I've trained in other systems, my aim has always been, how will this improve my karate? Now, when I go to... The, the dojo or whoever's teaching me these other art then I go to learn their art I never want to be that guy who's kind of only there to learn bits of it and keeps telling the instructor how I would do it right I, I, I go there I'm there to learn what they've got to show me I'll learn it I'll learn it all I'll learn it as they tell me to learn it and then after the fact I'll then start to reflect on which bits will eventually move across so like with the judo for example when I went to learn judo I went there to learn judo I, did judo as I was taught it. I wasn't thinking about, well, I could punch him from here. You know, I, I'm trying to learn judo as judo. And after that, I go, well, what of that is appropriate to my aim? How would the strikes fit in with this? Uh, is this congruent with the, the objectives that my karate has? So if you're starting to find that you're training in things a lot and you can't see how that would benefit your core aim or your core art then you can argue that you're cross-training too much at that point you've lost sight of the objective and it is also possible to spread yourself too thin as well you know jack of all trades master of none as well so but i also accept that some that's the way they want to do you know they, they want to be competent at everything but they maybe don't want to excel at anything well, my thing has always been, I'm a karateka because that's the art that I love. So first and foremost, I want to be a, an excellent striker. You know, that, that's what I'm looking to do. And then all the other stuff, you know, the, the, the grappling, the trapping, all that kind of stuff, that's there to kind of supplement that and support those core striking skills to enable me to deliver them in any situation. And I've got a backup should the worst happen, right? Can't be an expert at everything, but I want to be a beginner at nothing. So I think it is possible to cross-train too much, but that always just depends on what your objective is. The next question is from Philip Bourne. He said, given that a technique cannot be delivered with maximum speed and power, where do you consider the balance to be? So that's a really good question. So, uh, and there's tactics in there as well, right? So, um, for example, for maximum power, the way I could do that is I start 30 feet away and I sprint at full power and I jump up in the air and throw my arm out last second. That will be the most powerful punch you can ever throw. But it's not a tactical punch. It'll never land. So you've got to say, sometimes you say, okay, I've got to not land the most powerful shot I can land because I just need to land the shot. So I need to make some compromises there tactically too. Uh, and there can be, not always, but there can be this between speed and power so if you are moving inefficiently just trying to get the fist of the target as quickly as you can and in doing so you're not able to engage the body mass in an effective way so it becomes an arm only punch what's the point of that you know because it'll land there but it won't do anything um that that's can be one of the negatives of point style sparring not that it's negative in itself 
But if, if you if you do a lot of that, a lot of the way the techniques are thrown are not optimal for, for maximum power, whereas they are optimal for scoring the points. They're doing what they should do. Yeah, but if we're looking at power, there can be times where we think, okay, tactically and technically, I need to make a compromise here in order to get uh, the, the, the impact. So what I always tell my students as well is, is when given a choice between speed and power, choose power. Because a powerful technique that gets there will still do something, right? Uh, a fast technique that gets there with no power won't do anything. So what's the point of it, right? Uh, but, but, but we should always be thinking about how we can maximize both. Right, how we can maximize both. So how can we move in such a way that we'll get the maximum power and speed? So that's one of the reasons I find the double hipping method to be so effective. It's why I adopted it as soon as I saw it and more importantly felt it. Double hipping is massively misunderstood. Like, you know, people think they understand it and they just don't. You know, um, it, it's something of a frustration to me. It's because people see it once online and they, they think they understand it. It's like going to your first karate class going there for five minutes, learning the dojo etiquette and how to tie a belt, and then say karate is nothing but bowing and tying knots, right? It's not the way it is. The, 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 the double-hipping method is, 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 is deep. You know, there's a lot to it, and it does aid the transition of techniques. It makes you flow more effectively, so you, you, you get a higher rate of fire, uh, which sometimes people don't think it does, but that's because they don't understand it. Uh, and the other thing is it does increase um, speed and power too. So it increases power primarily because you're not rotating around a central axis, but you're rotating off to one side, so you get more of the mass moving forwards into the target. Another one of the subtleties of it that people often miss uh, is that the hand sets off later than it would do normally. So that would seem on the surface that it'll end up hitting the target later or it'll be slower, but it's not. Because what happens is the, the body initiates the movement. The arm doesn't initiate the movement. So because the body's already started to turn before the hand has, what happens is that the muscles stretch and then you, you then get that plyometric contraction, um, which is, again, more explosive. And then the arm will actually move quicker than it would have done. So although it starts later, it moves faster. You know, so to give an example from my home here in Cumbria, if I was to travel in London, the guy can set off on his bike three hours before I will, but I'll still get there faster in my car, right? Because it goes quicker. So, so that's one of the things that the double hipping method allows you to do. You get a higher rate of fire because you can combine techniques more effectively. You get more mass into the technique and the techniques accelerate quicker because you engage that plyometric contraction because the muscles get stretched. You know, human beings, there's two things we do better than any other creature on this planet. Thinking is one of them, and the other one is throwing, and you know, we forget this. If you look at the great apes, you know, they're way stronger than we are, but they can throw at a fraction of the speed we can. You know, I think chimpanzees can throw at about 20 miles an hour, where, you know, human beings can throw at over 100. You know, you know your best-throwing chimpanzee, your best-throwing gorilla won't be able to throw anywhere near as well as your average human being. And I don't think it's a coincidence we use the term, you know, we throw punches. I think we intuitively get the idea. We don't say we thrust punches, we throw them. We know that the way our physiology is built is it's a throwing action that does it. And if you think of throwing, that's the way it works, you know. You project the body forwards, you know, the, the, the hand hangs back a little bit, the body rotates, and then, you know, the projectile shoots out the hand with great speed and great accuracy. So we kind of minimise that for tactical purposes, but that's essentially what we're doing when we punch in that way. Um, so, you know, there are ways to kind of maximise both speed and power and to effectively con consider tactics. But forced to choose, you know, it has to be power, right? Because if it gets there without power, it, that, that's, it, it's pointless. It has to have an effect when it lands. End of part two. Please rewind the cassette before returning it to the store. <laughs> it's another joke that people of a certain age uh, won't get. I don't know if you can hear that, by the way, but my uh, neighbours, as I'm recording this, have just started playing Christmas carols at uh, very loud volume through external speakers. So a lovely thing for the community uh, around where I live, but not ideal when you try and record a podcast. So if you can hear those carols, I hope you're enjoying them.